Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. Brought to you by our friends at KnowYourScript.org. KnowYourScript.org, a great place to go for all things considering uh, opioids. You know, whether how you want to talk to yourself, talk to your doctor, talk to your loved ones. A wealth of knowledge. Yes, I love it. Go check them out, KnowYourScript.org. I think I think the best thing about it is it helps you get over that anxiety of what to do, what to say, mm-hmm. you know, because you don't know. Yeah, And if you go there, you're going to get a lot of great ideas. You're going to feel empowered. You're going to go and have a better conversation. It's like it's like getting the playbook. Yeah. You got what it. What to do with your old scripts. Yes. Right? right? A lot of people have those floating around the house. And that's dangerous. And we've heard a lot of people who have uh, been on this podcast, and that's where they got you started. You can't just throw them away. No, no. And you shouldn't flush them. Nope. You put them in a dirty diaper. Or coffee grounds. I'm telling you, I, I I've been to their website. That's a good that's, way to get rid of them. That's your favorite method. I know there are other options because I don't know. I don't have dirty diapers available to me. Yeah, you know, so that I, there have to be at least two options. Yeah, coffee grounds. Yeah, coffee grounds. Okay. Or if you don't drink coffee, I mean, you can put them in peanut butter. You can put yeah. them in soup. Whatever you want. <laughs> Put them in soup. Well, I just, I just, just go with it. I can't look at you because you cut your hair. You look, you look proper. You look yeah. like a doctor. Before you look like a doctor who prescribed ivermectin. Now you look like a real doctor. <laughs> well, you know, every once in a while you got to clean up, fly right. Hey, we're gonna get to our guests in just a second. But I had something interesting happen to me the other night. So uh, I'm, I'm going to a basketball game, and I've Weber got State. Weber State, great, great, great. All right, because you're the, you're the on court. MC. Mascot? Oh, MC. MC. And so okay. I run the games. I All give right. away sunglasses and coolers and right. throw out Make t-shirts. Make fun. And so I, my Frankie, my middle child, she wanted to go and she wanted to bring a friend. And I was like, cool. I can get tickets. We'll yeah. go down there. You can see your dad work. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, I grew up walking around uh, the event center, uh, watching them play basketball, trying to pick up chicks. Um, yeah, the event center is a place to be. So uh, we get in my car, and for those who don't know, uh, I still got one of those breathalyzers in my car that I got to blow into right. uh, in for order to start. Yep. And then about every 15 minutes, it goes off, mm-hmm. and then I got to blow in it, and it keeps my car running and everything good. Uh, Frankie brings a new friend. I don't really know this friend. She's in junior high now. She's you know branching out, getting new friends. This is when you have to decide if the friends are okay or kind of sketchy. Yeah, yeah. Because right? yeah, in elementary school, they all seem pretty all and right. And this friend seems very cool. Okay. Uh, she gets in the car, and somehow we get to the venue without her noticing that I've had to blow into my car five times to keep it running. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. Which Because I was cranking the music, and everything was cool right. and, and, and all that, and didn't even think about it. Well, after the game, we get in the car. 
and it's dead silent. I go, hey, how was the game? They go, that was really good. You were you were very funny, Mr. Scott. Cool. Hold on. I blow into the cartridge. What is that? <laughs> and 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 I and it took me back, and I was like, well. And, and I didn't know what to say. Normally, I'd have something funny to say, but and most of her friends already know my situation. Did you say it's natural gas? No, I said, oh. well, I was an idiot, so I have to do this in order for my car to start. Oh, so you're just straightforward. Yeah. And she didn't push it, and I didn't push it, so I didn't tell her it's because I had a DUI, uh, and, and this was court-ordered. She didn't ask more questions? No. And she was really? And I go, yeah. And then we were driving home, and then it started beeping again, and... I look in the rearview mirror. She looks at me. I look at the thing and I blow in it. Yeah. And um, she doesn't say anything else. And uh, I've never met her parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm dropping her off at her house. And so I drop her off at the house. I go, hey, thanks for coming. She goes, no, thank you for having me. It was a wonderful time. Very polite, sounds like. Yeah. Nice and then kid. the door shuts. And I go, Frankie. She goes, yeah, Dad? I go, I'm sorry. I, I didn't know what to say. And she goes, it's okay, Dad. I'm not embarrassed. You're all right. Good. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I'm getting a little emotional. And I go, I got great kids, man. You know what I mean? Because right. you know they're at that age now where if they can see blood in the water, friends will will tear you apart for it. Junior highs are off, man. You know. And and she's like, Dad, I'm not embarrassed. Mm-hmm. I'm proud. And, and yeah. it's okay. And, and I and, and we kind of just drove home without saying anything. I was just thinking, I was like, part of me felt like a huge jerk because I had to put my daughter in that situation. So you were worried that that would embarrass her as junior high, new friend, all that. Kind and of that stuff. because I was stupid, selfish, that I put myself in a situation where I have to do this. Yeah. And I know that I have to do this to get myself back out, and I'm okay with that. And I know my daughter and my kids are proud of me. But I felt bad that I had to put her in a situation like that. And we haven't talked about it since. And so I'll do a follow-up and go, hey, did your friend ever say anything that was weird that I had to blow and start my car? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And she's going to go, no, Dad, we didn't even think about it. And, and, and maybe they didn't. But I would hate for that. Well, you're worried about the collateral damage, right? Yes. Like, so as a parent, you know, you, you want to raise your kids the best that you can. But our mistakes affect them. Mm-hmm. And this is a big one. And so... You know, I know you're grateful for the opportunity to have that so you can drive yourself around because yeah. the, the bike was getting a little old, right? And I, and I was bumming rides here. Bumming rides everywhere you went. So this is a great alternative, but I could see how you'd feel that way. But my question is, I could see how you'd be like, feel a little embarrassed. And, and that, first of all, I hope everybody heard you say, I didn't know what to say because that rarely, I don't know if I've ever heard you. Normally I'm lock and loaded for anything. <laughs> for anything and right. everything. You've always got a comment that's on, that's on point. But, like, my question is, when you asked Frankie about it and she said, she said, no, Dad, I'm not embarrassed, how did she get to that point? Why, what do you think has happened since the arrest and the DUI and all, you know, the, you know everything to where, because that does seem like something a junior high kid might feel embarrassed about, but she's not embarrassed. So what has happened, i.e., what do you think you've done as a parent to make it so at this point in time, she's not embarrassed. I think, to be honest, I think I've done the work. Uh, I've done what needs to be done. Uh, I've been transparent with my kids. Uh, I've brought them along the ride. Uh, they know what I'm doing. They know where I'm at. And so I, th- I think they've seen the good work that's come from it. So how could they be embarrassed for something that's given them their father back? Yeah, no, I, that's exactly that's exactly. It's, what it's, I think, it would yeah. be my guess. Yeah, but yeah, I don't it's know. your openness with the kids. You've brought them along the journey. You've been completely open and honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that because of 
you know the stigma of of drinking and driving and all of those kinds of things and alcoholism that a lot of people who are in recovery sort of have one foot out the door where they're not fully open with everybody who's close to them in their life and i think you've been from day one including your kids in your journey explaining to them what your problem has been what your solution is you've educated them you guys talk about it all the time uh, they've had some tough questions early on, you know, and you've handled those. You haven't shied away. So I think uh, I think that's a great model for anybody out there who's in recovery or contemplating recovery. And you're a parent. Like, how much should I tell my kids? You tell them everything. Because I, in my head, I started doing some future tripping where all of a sudden I thought she was going to go home and go, how was the game, honey? And she goes, pretty cool. Hey, dad, he had to blow in his car to start it. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And then all of a sudden the parents are like, what are we doing? We're letting our daughter go with a guy who's got to blow into his car to start it. Yeah. You know? And, yeah. and so I started getting a little anxiety and, and a little sure. embarrassment and sure. trying to figure it all out. And so right. I'll let you know how it all plays out because here we are talking about it now. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the truth is a lot of people, um, something will come up and they'll say, oh, you, you do a podcast. And I'll say, oh, yeah, I do a podcast with Casey Scott. Oh, we know Casey, right? So, you, so you're pretty well known, but maybe they don't know you. Maybe they don't know your story. So, yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Frankie says going forward. Well, we've got a great show for you today on the podcast. Somebody we've been trying to get for the past three years. His name is Ian Acker. Uh, he's been uh, responsible for many of our great guests on the podcast over the past three years. Uh, he's uh, from Fit to Recovery. Uh, he started that. Did you start that? Uh-huh. Yes. And uh, you've been doing that for how long now? I had the idea in 2013 and got a building in 2015, so... For those who don't know, before we take a break real quick, what is Fit to Recovery? Uh, Fit to Recovery is a safe place for people to connect through fitness, nutrition, creative arts, and service. Uh, it really is a safe haven for so many people out there. Yeah. And uh, it's been instrumental in a lot of people reaching their sobriety and staying on the road to recovery. So we're excited that you stopped by. We're going to find out a little bit more about his story in just a few seconds. Stick around. You're listening to Project Recovery right here on KSL. It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. And our guest today is Ian Acker, uh, the founder of Fit to Recovery. And uh, uh, I would say the gold standard uh, when it comes to recovery and working out in the state of Utah. How did you come up with this idea for Fit to Recovery? Well, the, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, it's, it's cool to be around um, two people. Casey, I've known you for you know, a few years now, and, and I've followed your journey, and I've followed your story, and I'm just proud of where you're at today. Well, that means the world to me. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so it started, it started, there's a place called Phoenix Multisport, and I always want to give them uh, a little bit of credit um, because it's part of my story. They're a CrossFit gym in Denver that has now gone national, and I was in treatment, and my mom, my mom sent me an article about Phoenix Multisport. Um, and me being ambitious and, and we were talking off, off camera of like the first three months, you think you can do everything all at once. And, and I wanted to do everything all at once. So I went out to Phoenix and I said, I want to bring one of these chapters back to Salt Lake. And they said, um, cool, but 
that's too much of a liability. Like you only have a few months sober. We, we don't trust, like ultimately we don't trust you with the brand, um, which I was resentful at at first, but I understand why now. Um, so I was like, okay, I'm just going to go back to Salt Lake city and, and I'm going to try to do it myself. <clears throat> um, and in that time, I thought about the things that were really important to me in my sobriety. And that was service. That was being there for other people. That was reaching out to other people. That was, um, I volunteered at a food bank for a year straight. Um, that was creative arts. Believe it or not, like a lot of my using uh, revolved around hip hop and writing. And uh, that obsessive brain, I would stay in my parents' basement for 12 hours a day just writing and, and finding my voice behind a microphone, even though it wasn't authentic. It was something that my body changed when the right song came on at the right time and I could I could lay down the right lyrics. Um, so creative arts is the second pillar. The third pillar is nutrition. When I eat healthy, I feel better. Um, having a relationship with food rather than a diet um, and really building esteemable, esteemable acts like cooking, um, doing things for myself, picking... picking um, different things from the garden and then preparing them and then eating them. It feels more esteemable and, and I, that's how you build confidence. And then the last one was fitness. Um, I was training people in recovery at my treatment center. And after we got done training, I saw that authentic connection. So it just ar- arrived around those four things, um, that seemed vital in my early recovery. So we heard about Fit to Recovery. Let's hear a little bit about your story. Uh, off mic, I asked you where you're from. You said Ohio. That's yeah. what brought you to Utah, and you said treatment. So how did you go from Ohio to Utah? So Ohio, um, two sisters, wonderful, wonderful humans, very supportive family. Um, dad has his PhD. Mom has uh, helped the homeless in, in Ohio, so she was uh, a grant writer. Um, and... My childhood, like I thought it was perfect, but I'm learning more and more. Uh, the more I go to therapy, the more that I understand addiction. It, it's a family disease. Um, and, you know, at an early age, I never felt good enough. I didn't learn the way other people learned. Um, I didn't, I didn't, when I was in class, I always felt alone. You know, I was in uh, special education in sixth grade, which taught me two things that uh, the biggest two things that it taught me was everybody's equal, but it also taught me that there's something wrong with me. I was in therapy at 10. Um, at 15, my friend, um, he he passed away in front of us, and he drowned, and um, something in my body shifted from that day. And, and after that, my solution became drugs and alcohol, um, mixed with not feeling good enough, not feeling a part of. So at 15... Um, you know, I'm just doing all the things. I'm 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 making grades like a 2.4, or, you know, less than that, and and I'm just surviving. Um, fast forward, I go to I go to school in in Springfield, Ohio. Um, Is this college or college? Yeah, yeah. And in college, I got a, a scholarship to play soccer. So that's one thing that really um, kept me above water, even if it was just a little bit. Uh, graduated. And then I thought that I didn't know much about addiction. Um, I graduated, and, and instead of going to um, find a job, I said, it's the people, it's not me. I'm going to move to Hawaii. I'm going to find a, a beautiful place and and uh, and figure this out because it's not me. So you, you did something that a lot of addicts do. 
um, they, they 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 blame it on the people around them. Yeah. And, and, and and I remember there was the same thing when I was first into recovery. I was like, I'm not like you guys. I'm just in a bad situation. If I can get myself out of this situation, I can fix this. Right. And the reality is, is that I was the bad person in the bad situation. And I'm not saying that my my actions were bad, but I was. Culpable. I was the one constant in all these scenarios, and bad things kept trying to happen. So it couldn't be everybody I was hanging out with because I've got to have some ownership of it. Well, it's everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And until you figure that out, though, I mean, I think it's kind of a common, concrete rationalization that, you know, things aren't working in my life. And so instead of having an internalizing point of view, yeah. Uh, to actually have real control, we try to control things around us. And if things around us feel out of control, then we change. But one question, I want to go back and talk a little bit. I mean, you've mentioned two things that I would say are, are, are essential in your, your development. I mean, one is your self-perception or your identity. And, and that's one of the things that, you know, uh, we worry a little bit about uh, professionally for people like myself who work with kids and adolescents is, what is their self-perception if we're putting them in something like special ed? Now, you have a kid who needs help. Maybe they have ADHD. Maybe they have a reading disorder, learning disability. So they obviously need help. But unfortunately, for a long, many decades, one of the negative side effects that we risk is kids develop an attitude that I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm different in a negative way from my peers. Right? I mean, it was a joke uh, you know, from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It was the short bus. You know right. what I mean? I mean, right. I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't mean to sound crass or, or no. rude, but that was the joke. It's like, yeah, yeah. oh, that guy's not all there. He rides the short bus, right? You know, and and and, and that's a horrible thing to say. But you're right. There is a label that goes along with that. Well, there's a label, but I think the most important thing is how the person, because that's when you're developing your identity, right? Like, like from through childhood and adolescence, we're developing of our identity, who we believe we are, and that's not a little thing. That's actually right. everything. Well, in the language about worry, that's that's labeling, right? So right. that's so we're worried about this person when it's really Ian just doesn't learn like everyone else, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. So, so what I've been able to do to apply that to my life today is find people that are great at what I'm bad at and do what I'm great at, right? Okay, but, but right. that developmental, yeah. well, exactly, and that de- developmental stage, it taught me subconsciously that there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. Right, so it doesn't allow me to then stand on my own two feet. I always need help. I always need help. Something's going to happen. Exactly, right? you feel less than or incomplete exactly. or like needy. The but what that has also done for me mm-hmm. in my in, in with fit to recover is be able to see the person who's struggling, to be able to see the person that that has been pushed to the side. When I go into the jail classes, those are my people because they have been dismissed by society and they're lost and you can relate to that you can identify that's right that you know the signs that's right that's right the second thing that kind of took the second your- thing is trauma yes uh, you had a friend die in front of you you had a friend drown in front of you yeah and like you said there's something shifted inside um how to what degree do you think that changed you as a 15 year old i i think that changed everything i'm a big proponent of trauma as a gateway to a lot of addiction. Um, yep. And we see that time and time again here on the show. I see it in my office where trauma is often the turning point for it because now you something shifts. You need to feel better. You seek feeling better, yes. but you don't understand it. And so often it's the 
the powerful thing you reach for. It's not therapy that takes a while. It's drugs and alcohol. It's the quick fix because you're in fight or flight all right. the time, right? And, and if you just need to breathe, you do the one thing that you know works um, until that stops working. And then you have to make a decision. And I would imagine in the work that you do, that's another sort of radar that you have. You can identify people that are struggling with with uh, trauma. And I think it's even harder with men because a lot of our culture is to be tough, be strong, handle it yourself. Yeah. And so a lot of men don't want to admit even to themselves that they've been traumatized by something like losing a friend. Yeah. And that's why I like hip hop so much because hip hop allows me to be tough. When I listen to hip hop, it changes. It's empowering. It's empowering. And, yeah. and like I'm a scared human being. I have a lot of anxiety. I have a lot of fear. I have a lot of these things. But when I turn on hip hop music, I become LL Cool J. Mama said, "Gonna knock you out." No, I don't. I can't fight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, it makes it makes me feel empowered. Exactly. So yeah. I, it's a big reason why I like hip hop. So to get back to your story, uh, you know, you start drinking and using uh, after the dr- death of your friend. Uh, yeah, and before that, I mean, it was a good social lubricant, right? Uh, you managed to get through high school. You actually managed to graduate college. Yeah. Uh, you find yourself in kind of a sticky situation, uh, and your answer to that is to move to Hawaii. That's right. Control, alt, delete, a little restart. That's right. That's right. And so what goes on in Hawaii? Just complete. That's that's when I hit bottom after bottom after bottom after bottom. Um, I was stuck on an island using and drinking every single day. Uh, was it ice? Was it meth? Was it was it- speed. It was uh, pills, uh, Xanax, and copious amounts of – it was alcohol every morning. Every morning. My my day looked like I was painting houses, and uh, we would we would wake up, and we'd drink 240s every single morning, and then we'd get a, we'd get a six-pack, do some speed, and then we would end our day with a 12-pack and, and two Xanax bars. So that was, that was every single day. Um, for – about a year and a half. Actually, about a year. It was about a year. And, uh, you know, on the podcast, uh, people usually refer to their rock bottom as a turning point. Uh, through that time in Hawaii, did you have multiple rock bottoms, or was there one that really kind of shifted your way of thinking and where you got sick and tired of being sick and tired? No, I I, uh, I managed to get back to the States. Um, I called my mom, and, and uh, I managed to get back, and... And I was supposed to take care of my grandma, who I loved, and um, I couldn't sit with her long enough until running to the store to get a 12-pack. Um, that's when I knew something was wrong, and that still wasn't my my aha moment. Uh, I went to treatment. We Google searched, because at this time we didn't know exactly what addiction was. I thought addiction was you admit you had a problem, and then you get fixed, and then you go back, and life's kind of hard, and you still have anxiety, but it's not as bad. Mm-hmm. Um and then I got out and I had terrible anxiety and I had the obsessive brain and I had terrible depression. So I just drank again. And did you ask for treatment? I did. You, you did. So I you're did. there trying to take care of grandma. It's not clicking. And you, you actually asked, I need some help. I need but, some help. But you had a, a skewed view, but maybe a normal view for the average person of what yeah. treatment looks like. I yeah. thought I just had to admit it. Right. And then I go and I, it's uncomfortable and like learning to deal with alcohol like sugar, right? Like I cannot eat sugar for a week. I think about it, but it doesn't ruin. Yeah, doesn't ruin my day. But this the, this anxiety—it's how I coped with every single racing thought. How I how I coped with getting out of bed. 
how I found purpose, how I found stimulation, how I found excitement. And that's the other thing besides trauma, maybe even more common is is uh, anxiety is a gateway to a lot of early alcohol and marijuana use. And you you even used the term when he was asking you about it when you were 15, you're like, well, it's a good social lubricant. Yeah. And that, that term tells me that from a young age, you felt uncomfortable socially until you drank. Yeah. Well, and I was always good with people, like socially, like I, I was, I was good. Um, it was the anxiety that I felt just all the time. It was just generalized anxiety. Okay. Just kind of that general yeah, tension but like, all the time. I love to chop it up with people and, and like connection is something that's super important to me. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I mean, just that generalized anxiety of just fear of, of not like no reason. So when you get out of your first rehab. Yeah. And you said that's when the anxiety really took control. Again, yeah. But it was it, it was it more or less? It was more because I didn't have anything to... Combat it. Yeah, that's right. And I thought that if I go to treatment, then they give me like... And I was always looking for a pill that they would give me that would fix me. Because that's what I learned when I was 10 is go to the therapist. They'll give you this pill and you'll be able to manage your life. They didn't give me that. And I just go out in the streets and I'm like... This is too difficult. I can't do this. So where do you go from there? You start drinking again? Yeah. Yeah, I start drinking. Uh, and then I go back to treatment, and then I get out, and I start drinking again, and then I go back to treatment. And and the next time that I go out, I'm like, okay, they've taught me um, the 12 steps. They've taught me um, AA. I'm going to try that, and uh, I'm going to try and find some like natural remedies. And that was kratom and bath salts. And I thought they were legal. So, like, it wasn't bad. Uh, and I called my mom. I went to the bodega, and I was like, Mom, I found this stuff called Kratom. It's really inspiring, and it's really helpful, and, and like, my anxiety is, it's really helping. You know, fast forward three weeks, the same thing, right? I, I'm looking for an external solution when it has to be internal. So they send me to jail. I get locked up again. This is, like, the eighth time I've been in jail, and this was my turning point. Um, I go to jail. I... uh I, I, I they they come to my house and and they arrest me, and at this time I'm so used to going to jail that I know how to dress, so I'm in my long sleeve and my my sweatpants, and I get into the the holding cell and there's this gentleman, really nice belt buckle, really nice, you know, sunglasses, fitted suit, and I'm like, why are you in here? And he said, you know, these police officers are are just taking advantage of me and and I shouldn't be in here, and I'm like, well, were you driving? And he said, yeah, and I said, well were you drinking? And he's like, not much. And I was like, well, what'd you blow? And he was like a 0.24. Oof. And I said, buddy, that's why you're in jail. And yeah. I said, I've been blaming everyone else for my anxiety, for my depression, for my obsessive thinking, for my fear, for the trauma. And I made a decision in that jail cell to take responsibility for my life. And what that means is doing the work. That means going to the meetings. That means showing up when you're scared. That means um, doing the hard things that you don't want to do. That means having the conversations. That means checking on another alcoholic. That means um, whatever it is. Whatever it is. What, what was it about seeing this uh, well-dressed guy in such denial? What, that had some effect on you. Like, what effect did that have on you? Because that, that, that's what I wanted. I thought I wanted to be this guy who could hold himself well and dress well and, and, and have an appearance that people would respect. And when I saw that he was not authentic and he was dishonest and he was blaming other people, I saw that side of me. And I said, I don't want either of those things. 
Interesting. Isn't that interesting yeah. how yeah, it's sometimes those those small moments they just they make us see things differently. Yeah. Often make us see ourselves differently and that's a catalyst for change. Yeah. yeah. Well so said. you go into jail and you've got this newfound mission. We're going to find out more about that uh, in just a second. We're going to take a quick break right here on Project Recovery. All right, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Ian Acker from Fit to Recover. Uh, I finally got it right. Excellent. Good job. Hey, thank you. So you've got this newfound belief in yourself. Uh, you know who you want to be, who you don't want to be, and you go into jail. How long are you in jail for this time? Just, I get released in uh, 24 hours, 48 hours, 48 hours. Then the ironic thing, this is the craziest part, is uh, one of my drugs of choice was Adderall. And the treatment center that I just got out of sent me a new script of Adderall for who knows why? So I had a full bottle of Adderall when I got out, and I didn't touch it. Really? So, or maybe I took a few. I don't. I don't remember. But like, I didn't abuse it, and I threw it away. Is is kind of how the story goes? Yeah. And so, do you go back into a treatment center at that point, or do you go, "Hey, look, I'm just. I've got this." No, no, I, I, uh, I go back. So I went to jail when I was on pass. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, pass is when you kind of been doing good in recovery and you get a chance to go with your family or someone to lunch or to go do something. Jail's not usually the place they yeah. want you to no, go. No, right? no. Yeah, so I snuck into my ex girlfriend's house. I crawled through her doggy door and I found her in bed with somebody else. <laughs> so that's. Oh. Ouch. Yeah, that one hurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that one hurt. But oh, she's a good man. woman. And, and like, I, she was the one that said, Ian, I love you enough to let you go. And I didn't understand what that meant until. Um, I did. So that's when I went to jail, and then that's when I went back to that treatment center, and I finished out, and, and that's when I started my recovery path because I could finally hear what people were telling me um, because of that instance. I was going to say, it sounds like you, yeah. you that you really made a decision, a, a shift in how you saw yourself and the world. Yes. yes. You know, it, I mean, it's crazy because you just said it. You could finally hear what people have been trying to tell you. I mean, there's a lot of times we've had people in here that have been to multiple rehabs, and probably heard the same thing over and over because th- there is a lot of the same information that's in one treatment center to another treatment center and this. I mean, yeah. it, it, it is. Yeah. But it just depends on that person if they're willing to hear it. Like there's a lot of people who are like Ian and like myself who went in and weren't ready for the message. Right. right. You know, they they, they, they they were still blaming their situation, their work, whatever it might be, their trauma for their actions and why they're feeling this way and then until you sit back and we say it all the time in recovery sometimes you got to sit in your own crap and it's not going to be fun it's not going to smell good and and it's probably gonna be miserable but you need to yeah and and that's a hard thing to do you learn to own your behavior take responsibility for your behavior responsibility that's it so you've been sober for how many days now uh nine and a half years congratulations yeah that's amazing. It's it's a yeah. I mean, from a kid that was pulling his eyelashes and pulling his hair out, um, I've come a long way, man. I, I feel really grateful for uh, where I'm at and how I've been able to maneuver with with authenticity and, and ethics and do the next right thing and and be a service. So, what is the biggest thing you see in the recovery world right now? If you could help one area. What would be that area? Because, I mean, you really see 
people from all over the state at Fit to Recover. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you're on the front lines. You are their best friends. You're their confidant. You're the person that they call, they look up to. What is the thing that you think we need to do better? I, I just think consistency is the biggest part, discipline. Um, people need to be um, taught consistency and, and showing up no matter how you feel. And and I think that that, that comes from my conversation yesterday with um, the jail program that we work with. Uh, CATS, are you familiar with that? No. So CATS is a, it's a subsidized or it's, it's, it's a program where if you want to get help from your substance misuse in jail, you can uh, go into this program. And what happens is people, I go in there and I teach uh, once a week and, and we do workouts in the jail and uh, everyone's all excited. And then there's this drop off when they get out, they go back to the same environment. They go back to the same things and then they never come and see us and we scholarship them in for a month. Um, so it's, it's about teaching for me. I think the biggest thing is teaching people that you show up no matter how you feel. Um, but that doesn't even answer your question. I just, that, that came to no, my, I love it. No, that came to my mind. But, but your question was what's, the biggest area that we could do something. What what needs the love? What do you guys think? Well, I think what you're saying it goes back to this idea of transition, sober living, uh, scholarships for things, uh, different types of treatment, so that when a person comes home from jail or they they leave their residential treatment place, that they're not returning to the exact same environment. Sure. We see that in mental health, especially when people are hospitalized for mental health issues, yeah. and they go right back to the chaos and and inconsistency of their home life. And so I think that would be one area where we need more participation by the community to give people a real chance to transition into yeah. a healthy life. Well, and, for me, I think that like it goes back to the point when you're not ready, how do you make somebody ready? You can't. Well, so then there's your, you can't teach someone consistency. You can't teach them healthy nutrition. You can't teach them creative arts. You can't teach them community if they're not ready to hear it. Well, motivational interviewing is a type of therapy, so I'll throw that out there, that tries to help people get motivated and help people through those steps of behavior change. And so there's another example of something that could happen in transition is, let's say a person for whatever reason has gone through treatment, but maybe they haven't been fully invested, but they're in a sort of a better headspace coming out of there. If they could go through uh, supportive things like like a positive environment with with uh, sober living, and then also have scholarship and opportunity and transportation to get in and work with somebody on a type of therapy called motivational interviewing, helping them kind of build on the progress they've made, even if that progress was sort of forced on them, even if it was somewhat sure. half-hearted. I think we'd see a much better uh, rate of recovery than we see now. And I think that's a lot what Ian does with Fit to Recover. If you ask me what I think area needs the most, uh, I think it's empathy, compassion, understanding, and an education. And I think those four things right there is that there's still a stigma that goes around with it. There's still an, uh, a misinformation about what an addict is and why they're there and are they a bad person or are they a good person or what's the situation and we don't do it because automatically you hear addict and your main your brain goes to that guy's a dirtbag or that guy's horrible or that guy's not strong or that person's not strong and you want to go no they are i hope that changes with kids that are growing up today because of this kind of stuff because you and i grew up in 
eighties and nineties and all that kind of stuff. And that was definitely the predominant way of we, we, thinking I, of it. I can't think of anybody who hasn't been in a junior high and one time went, where'd Johnny go? Oh, he's an addict. And so they moved him away. You know what I mean? And don't become a Johnny. And you want to go, the reality is we're, we're, we all could become Johnny, but we don't talk about it. Nobody right. talks about addiction, really, really talks about it and lets people know that what's going on. It's just, it's all of a sudden you're an addict and now how are we going to fix them? What are we going to well, do? Well, luckily Ian talks about it. I know. Well, and I think, I think that's where our core principles are safety and connection emotional safety right like bigging people up making people feel seen making people feel supported like the environment that you walk in we want you to make it feel like it's your own right so i think emotional safety and and then when people feel emotionally safe then they can connect and when they can connect they feel grateful and when they feel grateful they they feel purpose and and i think once i found my purpose that really catapulted me into the uh, I got one more question before we end this. Uh, you know, when you first sat down, you wanted to talk about hip hop. Uh, in the interview, you did talk a little bit about hip hop and you said how you'd get lost in the beats in your parents' basement for up to 12 hours. Uh, and at one point, hip hop was probably associated with drug use. Yeah. Uh, is hip hop still important to you? Hip hop. If you ever come to the gym, I spent about $12,000 on speakers. So you can't really, uh, the <laughs> can't, right song at the right time. Can't escape the hip hop. But uh, yeah, I mean, like me and me and Ben, you guys have had Ben on here, is is watching him succeed. And um, just the whole marketing aspect of hip hop is exciting to me. The way people put lyrics down, the way people rhyme certain words with other words. The way somebody says the same exact thing as somebody else, but it sounds 10 times better from mm-hmm. the other person. Um the image that they portray. I was I was watching Kanye West on Drink Champs last night, um, with a net worth of nine billion dollars, and and like he's becoming t- powerful. He's becoming and he has a crazy mind and he has a beautiful mind. But it's just interesting with the politics and, and everything in between it. And and you know Travis Scott just had a concert where eight people died. Um, it's just becoming a very big thing, and it's the way people it's the way people express themselves, and and I think that you know, hearing the right song with the the right flow and the right you know set of bars in a in a in a minute, and then catching a bar that you missed five minutes ago, and, and being like, wow, that was brilliant. Like I just think there's so much creativity in music in the spot, and and that's uh, he does a cool thing with music at fit to recover Uh, and a lot of people music has been their way to stay sober their way to give back and if people want to know more information about fit to recover your scholarship program all the things you offer if someone's listened to this and has a loved one who thinks could benefit from it how do they find out more information uh www.fitnumeral2recover.org um, or you can come check us out. Just stop by at 789 West, 1390 South. Um, and yeah, we'll be there for you. You know, we'll support you. We'll see what we can do. We will never turn anyone away because of uh, finances. We'll always figure out a way to get somebody in. Um, even our meals now, um, if, if, you're, if you're food insecure, you're struggling with, um, with food, we can, we can help as well. So, And you guys got a, a new location maybe popping up soon? In Orem, yeah. So... We're, we're going to keep that till January 5, and uh, I'll make sure you're invited to the open house. So I can't wait. Dr. Matt, any thoughts? We're definitely going to have Ian back. Yeah, I want to have Ian back to really tear apart the program and discuss why it's helpful, what exactly it does. But I think I have one nugget that I gathered from what you just said, and that is, you know, we talk about the opposite of addiction is connection. Connection. And you had talked to, you just mentioned the beat and the lyrics and how 
I believe that Carl Jung talked about the collective unconscious. We're getting mm-hmm. out in psychoanalysis here for a second, but the idea is that human beings have this ability to connect with each other across time and space. And one of the main ways we can do that and do do that is through the messages or the art that we share with people. So when a person writes a book a hundred years ago and you read it and you connect with that idea, you and that person are connecting. Mm. Nowadays, we might do that much more often with things like lyrics because there's also the musical factor that affects us. And so connection really is uh, a healing uh, experience and uh, coming to a place where there are multiple ways to connect with others, like through the exercise or through the creative arts, the music, the hip hop, those sorts of things. Uh, I would s- highly recommend people take that opportunity because so many people feel home alone and alone in their addiction. And there's just almost nothing more healing than connecting. And you connect with, you can connect with Kanye West and never meet the guy. Right. You can connect with artists and never meet them and still have a healing experience. My well, boy's and, wicked smart. And huh? I think, and, and to that point, I could, I could talk to you about this forever, but that message that we hear sometimes, um, because it's disguised in music, because it's disguised in fitness, because it's disguised in food, because it's disguised in helping somebody else, you might hear it differently. Right. Right? Right. So you're finding a different way to say something mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. these four avenues. Right. You have that avenue. When you hear it, though, it changes your life. That's right. And you get the message. The message is good. Hey, thank you very much, Ian. We're going to have you back again. I promise you. Uh, we hope this is a brand new, fun, great relationship with uh, Fit to Recover. Dr. Matt, always a pleasure with you. Don't forget, Project Recovery is brought to you by our friends at knowyourscript.org. And as always, Project Recovery is what? It's one of those KSL podcasts. Right. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts.